the National Archives podcast series, Big Ideas, a heroic slow motion cataloging of life, presented by Helen Wakeley. This talk was recorded live on the 1st of December 2014 at the National Archives Q. Oh, thanks very much for coming along today. I gather you've had big news elsewhere in the TNA, so I'm glad you made room for the big ideas that I'm going to bring along. I feel like I'm slightly here under false pretenses because when I was invited to talk about my big ideas, I thought, oh, good, I don't know, are my ideas really big? It's quite daunting. So um, rather than bringing big ideas, what I've brought is a big problem, I suppose, or a big, a big challenge. Um, and then just thought I'd talk about the ways that um, at the Welcome we're starting to think about that big problem, um, you know, a kind of like a process of consciousness raising that we're going through. Um, and then just focus on a particular collection, which is helping crystallise, I think, some of those issues for us. Um, and then really just talk about the kind of thing that we would like to do, although we're not quite sure how we're going to do it. Um, and I suppose the process of collecting that I'm going to talk about is quite different, I imagine, to the way that you work here at the National Archives. So it would be really interesting, I think, to get your perspectives on what we're talking about um, and you know, see what questions and challenges you have for me, really, about what I've got to say. Um, so I assume most of you know a bit about the Welcome Library, you may have been, or you may work there. Um, obviously we um, touch on the understanding of human health in its broadest sense, um, and we have a big archive collection there. We've got, I would say, at least a thousand individual manuscripts, ranging from about 3rd century AD up to date, and we've also got at least a thousand individual archive collections, so some of those are tiny, you know, one box some of them are hundreds of boxes. So we've got a big variety of material to deal with. Um, and I think it's fair to say that a kind of culture shift is taking place in our archive team about how we acquire material and how we add to that collection. Um, it's become clear to us in the last few years that we're missing whole sectors of the community and society in our collecting remit. Um, we're particularly aware that there is a big gap with um, representing patient experiences of health and well-being and healthcare system. Um, so that idea of trying to represent the patient voice better is something that we recognise we need to do better. Um, and so I think in an attempt to try and redress that balance and that, that gap in our collecting, we're starting to reevaluate a little bit what we think of as an archive. You know, so what when we're faced with a collection that we're offered... Um, do we think is valuable? What is worth taking in and preserving? Um, do we have to kind of change our parameters a little bit? Um, and I think the archive that I'll talk about later today, which you can see a bit of there, is a really nice uh, example of a kind of messy collection with lots of different things thrown into it, which is making us just reevaluate a little bit how we take material in. My title, A Heroic Slow Motion Cataloguing of Life, um, is taken from the manifesto of a museum which I came across online, I've not been to, um, called the Museum of Everyday Life. And it's based in a barn in North Vermont, so I don't know if anybody's ever been to it. It looks fantastic. It's a really lovely kind of, um, yeah, slow motion, small display, focusing on objects that are banal, mundane, you wouldn't necessarily pay a lot of attention to. Um, and it's a very kind of interactive museum, clearly. But their manifesto is very clear that really what they want us to do is to curate this museum in our own imaginations, in our own way, you know, take inspiration from their museum and try and embed that idea of reflecting the everyday in our own practices, you know, whatever they are. Um, so here's a little excerpt from the first manifesto from the museum. Um, I wouldn't say I agree with all that manifesto. I mean, I find as an archivist saying down with the sanctifi sanctification of the original. <laughs> Quite a shock! <laughs> Up with the original! Sanctify it even more. Um, 
down with all things valuable and antique. You know, again, I can't really say that. I think some of the things that I most cherish and love in our collections and that are incredibly interesting are valuable and antique. Um, but what I really like about this manifesto is particularly the idea of down with the fetishistic worship of authentic works by the famous. I mean, I think that's definitely something that we're trying to take on board, have been doing for a while at the Wellcome Library, but I think that's quite a key issue. I really like the bit about up with a new kind of museum, living and breathing as common as dirt. I think that's a really nice way to think about collecting as well. Um, and down at the bottom in the small print, um, there's a nice little bit where it talks about um, wanting to put on a, a theatrical detailed expression of gratitude and love for the minuscule and unglamorous lives of the unfamous. So I think that is a really nice starting point for where we're at at the moment in the archive team at the Wellcome Library, kind of grappling with this concept of who it is that we want to actually represent in our collections. Um, so how does that manifesto fit with what we have in the archive at the Wellcome at the moment? Um, I'm not going to drone on too much about archive theory. Um, I have to say, we're not a very th theoretically driven body of people, I don't think, in the Wellcome. I don't know how that compares with your practice here. I suspect it might be a bit different. Um, we seem to kind of grapple with ideas and talk about them amongst ourselves. And then you go away and you read, ah, yeah, that, that was picked up in that particular theory there, the thing that we're trying to grasp our way to. So I think perhaps we could do with reading a bit more and thinking in a bit more of a, an overt way sometimes about how we're handling our practice. Um, but it's clear that when you look back over the way we've collected for the last 120 years or so, we've definitely reflected large trends in acquisition theory um, from the archive profession and the museum profession generally as well. Um, and so I suppose I've boiled them down into those three different areas there. Um, our collection was started really in the 1890s by Henry Wellcome, who was a pharmaceutical entrepreneur who made vast amounts of money and decided that he would indulge his passion for history in collecting just about anything that related to the history of health as he saw it. Um, so he collected objects, books, manuscripts, um, a vast collection. Um, and he didn't really have a particular theme in mind. What he really wanted to do was create a kind of taxonomy of different, different medical practices and curate them in such a way that he could demonstrate this progression towards a nice European practice of the kind of ideal medical practice, um, very much of his time, obviously. Um, after he died in 1936, um, a lot of his objects were dispersed, so there's a, sort of decades of work spreading all that material around um, different um, universities and museums. And I think, Izzy, you know very well <laughs> the dispersal records of that period, which you catalogued at the time, didn't you, when you worked at the Wellcome? Um, and so I think after he died, there was a definite shift towards documenting eminent physicians, societies, kind of looking at the function of all these eminent organisations and people and using that as a way of documenting medical practice and, and sort of medical understandings. Um, and obviously that changed, I say obviously, but inevitably it changed. I think by the 1970s, um, we took a very different view. We established the Contemporary Medical Archive Centre, um, which was very specifically trying to find collections that would fit with different research needs. So I think at that point, this is where the research-driven strategy really comes to the fore. So at that point, we were collecting materials very much looking towards um, feminist theory, women's studies, um, history of sexuality, um, this kind of thing. So we had particular drivers that we were collecting for. And I think now we've come to practice a lot more, well, those two strategies still combine, 
Um, we've still taken in material relating to eminent people like the Francis Crick archive. Um, you know, we still look for um, preeminence, but we're also trying to practice documentation strategy. Um, and this is something that we've come to think about a bit more explicitly because we are now running a project to try and map the archives relating to the Human Genome Project. So we're trying to find all the different ways that mapping the human genome is impacting on human health and, and sort of life and social life generally. So we're looking at the work of the scientists, we're looking at media impacts of that work, we're looking at medical uptake of the research data, we're looking at the impact on patients of that um, different medical treatment, um, we're looking at lobbying activities, um, kind of the political activities that surround this kind of work as well. So we're trying to look in a very broad way across a theme rather than just picking the research itself that's done. So I think that documentation strategy that we're trying to implement um, has had a knock-on effect beyond that project looking at the human genome archives. Um, we're trying to roll that out into our collecting generally. So we're taking in um, material, well, we're targeting material to fit with the various challenge areas that the Wellcome Trust has established for itself. So one of those is genetics and genomics. One is understanding the brain. Um, so we're definitely trying to find materials that we think will fit those particular collecting themes um, and try and broaden out how we approach them. You know, what kind of people do we want to try and target? What kind of organisations? And try and get a balance of representation. Um, but it's a slow process, and you know, we're trying to collect a lot of material on a big theme. There's only so much time that we can spend on it, you know, the, the, the team can work on it. Um, so I would say that that's kind of been bubbling away incrementally over the last two or three years. Um, but it's taken a project, I think, um, that has happened over the last three years to really spur us on to grappling with this idea of patient voice more in a more concrete way, um, a project that this particular item relates to. Um, which is a PhD project that has been run collaboratively between the Wellcome Library and the, an UCL. So there's a student called Anna Sexton who, I don't know if any of you have come across her, yeah. She's teaching at the moment on the UCL archive course. Um, and her project was specifically to set up an archive using participatory action research methodology. So she decided to try and set up an archive that would rep represent patient experiences of mental health recovery. And so she worked with a group of four people, um, Dolly Sen was one of them, to reflect these individuals' experiences of their mental health issues, um, their engagements with the mental health uh, care system, um, and construct a very subjective viewpoint of their experiences. Um, so to try and get away from this idea of the professional talking about what they were experiencing, giving them the chance to actually talk about their own experiences in their own ways. So Anna, with the um, help of these four, um, they together uh, constructed a website. So there's lots of artworks on there, images, film, um, poetry, um, narratives as well, about their different experiences. Um, and I think it was this project that made us realise what a lot of work we weren't doing in this area already to try and document this patient voice. Um, so Anna came up with some rather disconcerting statistics for us when she was doing her initial phase of her research in around sort of 2011, 2012. Uh, she had a look through our collections to try and identify which ones actually related to psychiatry, psychoanalysis, kind of dealings with mental health issues. So she identified about 130 archive collections out of our thousand or so. 
Um, and then she tried to categorise those into particular groups, so professional individuals, um, individuals with lived experience, we've got there, um, campaigners, the institutional records for big organisations. And I suppose we shouldn't be that surprised to find, but it's still a bit of a shock to see it on paper, that 91 of our collections, so 71% or so, relate to individuals as professional experts. And the individuals with lived experience is only about 7% of that collection. Um, now, I know Anna you know, herself um, acknowledges the difficulties in drawing those stats together. You know, it's very hard to know how to classify a collection sometimes. Um, and one archive might be giant and actually carry more weight than several other small archives, potentially. Um, and you do have lived experience bubbling up in lots of different places in those institutional records sometimes. But clearly, there's a big gap there, which we ideally would like to try and do something about. Um, and so Anna really was posing the question to our, our team and to the archive profession, I think, more generally, which is, do we have a social responsibility to actually shape how we collect materials? You know, should we be more proactive and less reactive than we are? Um, and then around the time that Anna was doing this work with us in the last two or three years, we were very serendipitously offered an archive um, by, created by Pam Maudsley. So you can see this, the second line up at the top there, um, the, the Pam Maudsley Diaries. Um, now, this was a giant collection, well, for us at least, of about 30 boxes of diaries that this woman had kept um, throughout her life, documenting her own particular journey through the mental health care system. Um, so she kept the diaries as a form of therapy, and she's an artist as well and a campaigner, so interleaved in these diaries are lots of artworks, sketches, letters, um, and just her own notes on you know, how she's feeling, her subjective experience. Um, and it was the first time we'd been offered this kind of collection, I would say, at the library, certainly in, in my experience. And it was really interesting how it divided the team in their responses to it, because part of the team was very keen that we should be um, upping our representation of patient voice. This seemed to be a particularly good way to start thinking about that. Other members of the team saw it as kind of self-indulgent twaddle. You know, why, why should we take in this person's subjective ramblings, their diaries? You know, they're, they're not valuable research material. They're just her view, which I thought was extremely interesting because it was a very concrete view that people took. Um, so we kind of bashed around for a, in a rare instance of, you know, thinking about theory and why we did what we did. Um, you know, should we not take this in because we should be challenging what we were taking? Um, you know, why was this kind of material any less valuable than the papers of Melanie Klein, the psychoanalyst? So um, we did decide to take that material in. Um, so that kind of formed the groundwork for, um, you know, future developments, I think, very much. So, with all that going on in the background, we're definitely aware that we are missing a trick and that we need to actually do a bit more work on developing our collections. Um, so, last year we were offered a separate archive, which kind of brings together all those issues quite nicely for us, I think. Um, yeah, is just shaking her head in horror at the picture. Um, it's the archive of somebody who died last year in her 80s, um, called Audrey Amos. And um, Audrey's family got in touch with us I don't know how they got hold of us, actually. It's a question I need to ask them, you know, where they found out about us, because we hadn't, as far as I know, been very proactively looking for this kind of material. But they came in touch with us, and what they had to offer was a gigantic archive created by Audrey um, over her lifetime. Um, 
Audrey was um, an artist, so when she was a young girl, she won a scholarship to the Royal Academy School of Art in London, um, came down, took up her um, studentship, and very shortly afterwards um, suffered, I think, a psychotic episode and was eventually diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. And then she spent the rest of her life going in and out of various um, mental institutions. So she was in the Maudsley, she was in um, Bethlehem Hospital, Tutingbeck um, she was in as well. So I think she spent a vast period of her life under the healthcare system. Um, when she wasn't in hospital, she managed to work as a typist in the civil service. So she had a very kind of quiet, stable life for periods, and then things became more difficult for her. She was a really adventurous woman. She spent a lot of time travelling around. Um, one of her travels in the 80s was to mainland China, um, which is quite impressive, I think, to head off that way anyway on your own at that point. Um, while she was there, she had another um, breakdown and was restrained um, in a hospital in China and then sort of shipped back to Britain and sent straight off to Tutinbeck where she was sectioned. So her archive actually contains a very interesting diary of this account and her sort of impressions of China and being in the healthcare system there, which is a fascinating, I think, bit of um, evidence on its own, in its own right. Um, so the kind of things that we have in this archive of hers are um, vast numbers of scrapbooks, about 200 of these scrapbooks, which contain all the food packaging that, for the, the food that she was eating from the 1980s to her death in 2013. Um, I'm not entirely clear whether she selected. I mean, she's obviously... You can't quite tell from those ones there, but she's sticking in 3D things like yoghurt pots. Um, so it's a very mixed collection. It's not the kind of thing that we're used to being offered at the Welcome. Um, she's annotated her scrapbooks as well, so she's put down her thoughts, her feelings, you know, sort of what she was thinking of when she was eating a particular packet of cereal. She might make a note down the side. It's all dated where she bought it, how much it cost. It's a, it's a real treasure trove in a, in a sort of a way, but quite radical for us to have a look at. Um, and then amongst all that as well, um, there are a vast series of her artworks, because at the same time as collecting all this food packaging, she was producing some beautiful paintings, lots and lots of sketchbooks, um, huge amounts of framed work. Um, so there's, a, again, a whole different difficulty there in the genre to deal with for us in that collection. Um, there's lots and lots of letters, so letters that she was writing. Um, she makes notes of her correspondence in a sort of detailed series of exercise books. So we know who she was writing to, when they wrote back, what they said, what she thought of their responses, this kind of thing. Um, there's also a lot of uh, letters and correspondence about her, so to her relatives from various mental health um, professionals as well. And posters so she was busy um, articulating her various views on the healthcare system via her posters all this was just in her flat where she lived with her mother and after her mother died you know she kind of stayed on in this flat on her own um, so the flat was just full to bursting of all this material um, so I didn't survey it but my colleague went over and took these pictures and brought them back and we were a bit nonplussed because we thought wow this collection is amazing it's got some incredible stuff in there um, bits of it are what we're quite used to, you know, the correspondence. The, the concept of a diary clearly is not new to us. But it was the, the sheer range of material uh, that was in there was quite daunting. Um, there wasn't any electronic media, at least, so you know, that was <laughs> one thing that we weren't facing in this collection, although we have in other ones. Um, so it was quite a, a mixture of material in there for us to handle, I think. So the questions we asked when we were faced by this collection were really... Um, 
we think it's really interesting, but is it an archive? You know, is this the kind of thing that we should be taking, or would it be better off in a different setting? Um, because the material is very sort of art. I don't know, material. It's it's the kind of the way the the scrapbooks have been put together. It's not just the contents; it's the objects themselves that are of interest. Are these actually more at home in the museum setting? We wondered, or kind of art setting? Um, and I was very interested interested to see. Um, there's an exhibition on at the moment in uh, North London at something called, now what is it, the uh, Parasol Unit Foundation for Contemporary Art. I don't know if anybody's been there. Um, it's a community um, operation which tries to open out modern art to a wider audience. And they have on display at the moment a collection of scrapbooks and other materials by a contemporary Japanese artist called Shinro Otake. Um, and so part of his work involves building scrapbooks of ephemera that he finds. Um, so he assembles them in collages, um, works on them in a very um, aesthetic way. Um, but he clearly sees his role as collecting this material, which he calls the bin gleanings from all over, um, and conferring value on them by constructing them into a kind of diary or a, a map of his worldview and of his travels and the people he's come across. Um, which didn't seem to me dissimilar to what Audrey's doing. Um, she's not working hers up in quite such an aesthetic way. But I was really struck when I saw that, um, at the kind of similarity between those two collections. So um, I'd like to try and pop over to that. It ends on the 12th of December, that collection or that exhibition. So it would be good to go and have a look at it. Um, so beyond whether it was an archive at all, you know, did it count as a kind of textual archive that we're used to taking in? Um, we just were faced by lots of practical questions as well. Um, it's a vast collection. There's these 200 scrapbooks. There's all the artworks and all her correspondence. Um, so we were wondering, can we take it all in? You know, do we need to try and boil it down? Can we take a sample of these? Or you know, if we sample it, are we just going to ruin the meaning of this collection because part of its value is its sheer entirety? You know, the fact it documents her life over a long period of time confers value on it, I think. Um, we wondered how on earth we provide research access to the scrapbooks particularly because they're so difficult to manoeuvre to open up sometimes. Everything's very tangled up inside and it's very tricky to actually get to see what's stuck in sometimes. Um, and then we thought, well, does that matter? Because partly it's the object that's interesting. It doesn't necessarily have to be um, a detailed examination of every single thing inside them. Um, and that led on really to how can we best preserve the material because... You know, when we were faced by all that sellotape kind of stuck in and all the, the hideous kind of... It was all clean, fortunately, the food packaging. She did a good job of washing it. Um, because that was an issue. We were wondering, you know, are there going to be kind of mouldering bits of food sticking in our, you know, our stores um, ad infinitum? What do we do? We can't, we can't possibly take them apart and make them safe archivally because not only would it be a giant undertaking, it would completely ruin the intention of the scrapbooks um, and sort of render them sort of irrelevant almost. Um, so in the end, we decided to adopt the more process, no, more product, less process um, approach, the MPLP approach, and decide that we wouldn't worry about all that at the moment. We just thought, OK, we'll, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it, um, because we just felt that the collection was too valuable not to take. Um, you know, we, we weren't quite sure if we were the best place to take it, but we couldn't identify it anywhere else, and we just felt very strongly that there was something that could be done with it, quite exciting at some point. Um, and I've put the recipe book page up there for you. Um, it's from a 1660s recipe book um, compiled by um, a female domestic practitioner. So she's writing her own medicinal recipe book at home. Um, really is a reminder that 
we don't always have to know what we're going to do with stuff at the point we take it in. And it's quite a valuable thing to recognise that. Um, so we don't know what we're going to do with Audrey Amos and her stuff, but I'm sure that somebody will do something really great with it. And it's valuable for us, I think, to take it and keep it ready for when that day comes, um, because I'm sure it will. Um, and you could say that very much the same about the recipe collection that we have at the library. Um, we've got a very big early modern collection of domestic recipe books which have medicinal content and culinary content as well. Um, and at the time that we first started collecting those, so back in the 1890s, um, they would have been considered just a kind of like a job lot of archives. They'd be stuck in the side. They wouldn't have been seen as particularly valuable apart from for their kind of artefactual value, I think. You know, if they were beautifully made, if they were beautifully written. But the content of them was very much sidelined and seen as kind of infra-dig in research terms. Um, and that didn't really change, I think, until the 1980s when medical history started focusing in a different way on domestic practice and looking at sort of the range of healthcare options on offer. Um, and at that point, these recipe manuscripts suddenly kind of shot off the shelves. So they're now one of our top sellers, so to speak. You know, we have a, a huge audience internationally who come to look at those, um, who look at them online now that we've digitised them as well. Um, so they have become, you know, a jewel in our crown. But at the time we were initially collecting them, they were just seen as the kind of add-ons and the detritus in a big collection of, you know, other stuff that we wanted to collect. So I think they're just a kind of salutary reminder that we can't see into the future and it's worth taking a risk sometimes on what you collect. So what are the possibilities of the Audrey Amos collection? Well, we're not entirely sure what people will make of it. Um, but there's lots of questions that are interesting to try and ask, I think, about um, why Audrey was collecting that material in the first place. Um, you know, why did she engage in this heroic slow-motion cataloguing of life? Because that's clearly what she's doing um, in a very methodical way. But we've been asking ourselves, did she anticipate an ultimate audience? Was she expecting that somebody would actually see this collection ever? Or was it purely for her own sake? You know, was she just doing this because she wanted to do it? You know, does it matter? Does it matter if, if there was an audience intended or not? You know, how does that change the way we interact with that material? Um, was it a way of structuring her time and conferring kind of busyness on a time which was otherwise very open-ended? Was it a way of her to try and you know, break down psychologically that kind of expanse of nothing that she was otherwise faced with? Um, was she driven by her artist's kind of tactile and very visual curiosity? She's very clearly drawn to the feel of things um, and the look of things. You know, they're very colourful. Very, you want to get your hands into them almost and have a good feel through them to get a sense of what she was collecting. Um, Perhaps she was deliberately trying to create value where there was no value. I and mean, I wonder sometimes whether she was putting two things up to the establishment and sort of saying, hang on a minute, let's challenge the status quo a bit. Um, you know, we saw her posters a while ago where she was saying, was it freedom and justice for the lunatics? Yeah. I do wonder whether she's, she's collecting these things and saying, you know, they're valueless. But they're not valueless. There is a value. We can find a value in them. Um, I wonder whether she was making connections with the outside world. You know, she's all the time in her annotations making connections with theories and ideas, um, like with this picture here, which I think is so nice that she's bought her space, in, what it, space raiders at Londis on Ballam High Road. They were nice <laughs> um, in 2006. Um, and then is attributing potentially the kind of like, concept to a sort of Matisse style. So she's all the time trying to link what she's buying on everyday um, basis with broader ideas um, and there's a really fabulous scrapbook where she's put in 
the lining of a cereal packet, so, you know, that really crinkly, kind of weird white plastic. Um, and then the note down the side is that the way the light is transmitted through this plastic and the sound of it is just like the curtains when she was restrained in the bed in her Chinese mental hospital in her trip in the 1980s, which is something I never would have thought of. But when you say that, you can kind of imagine what she's talking about in that kind of tactile way. So what I really love about her collection, I think, is the way she makes you look at things in a very different way. She's almost kind of childlike in the way she takes an object that you think is very familiar um, and then completely kind of throws your preconceptions out and makes you look at it in a very different way. So I think for that reason, there's going to be a lot of interest in getting to grips with her collection for a lot of different audiences. Um, but aside from the kind of interest in her collection, you know, the particulars of her collection, I think it's also interesting in that it kind of articulates some bigger questions. For example, who gets to document the truth? You know, who is it who is um, the person who's accepted, who's going to make that social commentary? You know, how do we know who we can pick and choose from? Um, are we being too selective? Um, and a story I think that illustrates that really nicely is one that her niece told us, so when we were acquiring the archive and surveying it, um, she said that whenever she used to go down the high street near where her aunt lived, there'd always be some kind of commotion going on somewhere. And she generally knew that it was going to be her aunt right in the centre of it. And so sometimes she'd just kind of go the other way and you know, she couldn't deal with it. She wanted to avoid the issue for the time being. And so I was thinking so many other people would have taken that you know, option as well and thought, oh, right, there's that batty old woman down the road, I'm going to go this way. Without any clue of what was going on in her flat, you know, this kind of massive outpouring of creativity and sort of activity and thought and articulacy that was sort of taking place just shut away in her reclusive little world. But if you'd seen her on the street, you'd have never have made that connection. So I think that's a really valuable sort of dissonance that we have to bear in mind. Um, and leading on from that, it makes me challenge, I suppose, how we label or possibly mislabel collections and their creators um, in our catalogues and in the way that we promote engagement with them. Um, we've described Audrey as a paranoid schizophrenic in our catalogue. Um, her family are very open about this and they're happy. You know, we've discussed with them whether this is an issue for them. They don't think this is a problem. Um, but I'm aware that if we do label her as you know, schizophrenic scrapbooks, here we are, we're potentially shutting down the interactions that people will have with that material. We're kind of channeling them in a particular way. Um, and perhaps we're just being very unfair to Audrey as well because, yes, she was schizophrenic, but that doesn't necessarily have any bearing on the way she was collecting her food packaging and, you know, ordering it. Um, you know, so trying to work out where that barrier lies between kind of her particular kind of schizophrenic madness, however you want to describe it, and sanity, I think, is very difficult. Um, so perhaps it's an opportunity to actually tackle those labelling issues, you know, and think about in our practice, certainly the welcome, you know, how we promote material um, and try to be inclusive in the way we draw people into it. Um, I mean, I think it's very interesting with Audrey that she seems to lie on a continuum. There's a lot of people collecting material, it turns out, very similar to her material. So we've seen Shimro Otaki in his scrapbooks he's collecting. Um, there's also a collector that... Um, I haven't read his book yet. I don't know if anybody here has read it, called Collections of Nothing. You've seen that. It's by somebody called William Davis King, who's a professor of theatre um, at the University of California. Um, and he collects a vast amount of food packaging and has been doing for 30 years. So he's somebody in a very stable job, 
to one sense of purpose is incredibly sane, um, and yet he's got this vast amount of kind of 30 years of the Cheerio boxes in his garage. And it's really sweet because I, I haven't read the book, I've read reviews of it, um, I must guess it. And he says that when he meets people um, you know, in a kind of dating situation, part of him wants to say, look at my vast collection. It's like, you know, my front of the cabin in the woods or it's my Goya in the, you know, my room. You know, it's the thing that he wants to really show off about. And then the other part of his mind saying, is there years with the Cheerio boxes in the garage? <laughs> what are you going to think about that? So he's having that debate with himself all the time about, you know, where his compulsive collecting lies on that continuum. Is he mad or is he sane? He can't work out himself. So I think it's really nice to put... Um, order into that continuum and just bear those other collectors in mind when we're thinking about what she's collecting as well. And I just put this word up because this is something coined by William Davis King in his book, which I think is the <laughs> best description I've seen in a long time of possibly what we're doing at the Welcome. Yes, ephemeria. I mean <laughs> so I just thought that was a nice one. I couldn't resist that. I kind of love him already, even though I've not read the book yet. It's just such a brilliant word. I think one of the challenges for us is to actually open out to as many research audiences as possible this collection, see what they make of it. Um, Because off the top of your head, you can imagine that um, food sociologists would have a field day. Um, I know I've been to um, various events over the last few years where people are trying desperately to get hold of actual domestic practice around food. And it's so hard to trace, you know, because I thought, yeah, we've got lots of stuff on nutrition and food in our collections. It'll be, you know sort of not easy but there'll be things in there that we can find which will document people's actual experiences and I drew an absolute blank I have to say I spend a lot of time looking through so there's lots of people commenting on what they perceive as people's practices um, or what they think their practices should be or what they shouldn't be Um, but it's very hard to actually find out what people were eating and what they were doing in their kitchens Um, and obviously Audrey may not have been putting everything that she ate into her scrapbook so I mean I I haven't seen any examples of kind of, you know, meat packaging or, you know, perhaps she was vegetarian, I don't know. But it's very hard to get a, a proper sense of what she was eating. But there's certainly a lot of material in there, which I think would be a bit of a goldmine for um, certain people researching um, domestic food ways today. The, the collection, I think, is very interesting because, it, yes, we are going to have lots of audiences who are going to want to deal with it, and we can work with them on that. Um, but I think, for me, it's really nice because it kind of sums up the, the physicality of archives as well, which... I think, I don't, certainly at the welcome, I think slightly in the last few years, we've been a bit in danger of forgetting. Um, there's this big drive to digitise everything, become the, our global digital library. Um, this was a part of our five-year plan, which has just come to an end, um, to make digitisation part of business as usual at the welcome. And it's great. We've digitised some important collections, and we are going to keep on doing that from now on. But... I think our, another of our core objectives is supposed to be active interpretation of our collections. And I do wonder whether sometimes we're so busy sticking things online that we've forgotten that it's actually really valuable to get people to look at some stuff and have a kind of, you know, effective kind of emotional sometimes reaction to it. I think we're sometimes slightly cautious as if it's not valid and acceptable to actually feel something when you look at an archive. Um, so I think that Amos is really nice because you can't get away from that physicality as soon as you look at her collection. Um, I mean, I find it, it's really nice seeing the sellotape kind of twisting around in there. You can just imagine Audrey doing battle with the materials because it must have been a real struggle for her to fit those in. You know, she's obviously had to eat and drink everything first, so you, know, you can just imagine her in her flat. You know, she's consuming this material. She's then washing it all out and drying it, sort of cleaning it very thoroughly, and then kind of yeah, getting out the sellotape and doing battle with it. 
And I think it inspires really strong reactions. I mean, you all laughed when you saw that picture. Um, everybody who's seen these scrapbooks kind of is either horrified or thinks they're hilarious or just can't believe what they're looking at. They kind of inspire a reaction. And I know it's easy to do that with a collection like this because it's unusual and it's kind of very in-your-face. You can have a reaction without really kind of reading too much into it. But you can then go and do that afterwards. So there's all those questions that we've talked about already um, that you can then go and think about. Um, so I think Ames is a really nice chance to kind of try and put that one-to-one -one interaction with archives back on the agenda in terms of interpretation at the Wellcome as well, um, because it's something I, I suspect is just slightly you know, fallen out of favour, or it's not top priority, and I think it's a shame, because I think it's one of the key things that you know, draws people in to, to working on that material. Um, and it's only one of the things that drew me to be an archivist anyway, was that kind of particular collection or connection rather with people, you know, the people who've made that stuff. Um, so really that's what I'd leave you with, is um, this kind of big messy archive. Um, it's a kind of catalyst, hopefully, how we all think about dealing with patient voice in the future. It doesn't solve a lot of problems. It's not, it's not a panacea. We've still got to think about how to be more proactive in how we target collections we haven't really tackled the sort of thorny question of do we actually try and go out and negotiate with people to create collections like Anna Sexton did with her mental health recovery archive. Um, and if we want to do that, how are we going to free up the time that we need to do that? That takes real sensitivity and patience and true collaboration. You know, we can't just go in and say, right, we want your experiences, we've got them, bye-bye. <laughs> it's not going to work like that. And I've seen Anna working. It's very time-consuming and draining sort of you know emotionally for her as the archivist as well to work on that collection so it's not an easy task that we've kind of setting ourselves but I do think we need to set it and to address it so I think Amos once Amos is available and we get some engagement going with it that'll kind of open up different connections for us so it, hopefully it's the start of something that will kind of keep rolling. This podcast is copyright at the National Archives all rights reserved. <laughs>